The name Red implies Esau's inability to look forward to the future, and he is named for it because this flaw invalidates him from the Abrahamic covenant. Such a man cannot connect present to posterity, cannot merge finitude with eternity, cannot serve as a link in what will become the Jewish generations. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 9, Synchronizing Heaven and Earth, Twins, and the Emergence of Israel. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. One of the most fascinating phenomena in the world of sports is that of twins playing and competing together on the same team or in the same athletic pursuit. Two separate articles in the Wall Street Journal describe the way that these athletes seem to maintain a mental link with one another, a psychological synchronicity, which gives them an extraordinary edge. Thus we are told of Henrik and Daniel Sedin, ice hockey players who were called the NHL's telegraphic twins, who seemed to pass to each other without looking, and of Karen and Sarah Josephson, synchronized swimmers and identical twins, who won the gold medal at the 1992 Olympics. Nancy Siegel, the psychologist and author of the book Entwined Lives, informs us in one of the articles that, quote, non-twin siblings often propel each other's performance out of a fierce sense of rivalry. But with twins, especially identical twins, it is often more about camaraderie, end quote. But what if two twins are entirely unlike, utterly opposing characters, born to a family formed for an eternal destiny? Would their parents choose one as heir, or desperately seek some synchronicity between the two? The tale of Esau and Jacob is enigmatic. Countless commentators have offered their own interpretation. Today, I will draw on the rabbinic reading of my own favorite exegete, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. I know that many have their own opinion about this story, so if you disagree, please direct all of your complaints to Rabbi Berlin. Though, seeing as how he lived in the 19th century, that may be somewhat difficult. I will also turn to one fascinating elucidation by a rabbi who also happens to be a chef, highlighting thereby how this tale of twins turns on details that are often overlooked. We begin back with Rebecca, journeying to the Holy Land in order to marry Isaac. Upon arriving, she first encounters him as an unidentified, mysterious man. Genesis 24, verse 63. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the eventide, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she alighted from the camel, and she said unto the servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. And she took her veil and covered herself. The Hebrew here is tricky. Rebekah's first action upon seeing Isaac is described as vatipol me'al hagamal, which literally means she fell from her camel. Most think this means that she intentionally alighted from her mount in order to meet her fiancé. But the verse makes clear that when she dismounts, she does not yet know who this meditating individual happens to be. Rabbi Berlin, therefore, reads the phrase literally. Isaac had gone out to engage in spiritual meditation, and Rebekah, startled by the sublime spiritual power radiating from him, fell off her camel. Today, a common idiom for starstruck romance is, he swept me off my feet. The biblical tale introduces another idiom, he made me fall off my camel, which may sound somewhat less romantic, but in truth it emphasizes the awe that Rebekah experienced at this first encounter. Then, Upon being told that this was the very man she was meant to marry, we read that Rebecca covered her face, 
highlighting again the reticence, the shyness in the relationship. This, as Rabbi Berlin explains, will set the stage for all that follows. There will be tremendous love in this marriage, but also awe and therefore lack of candid communication. Why is Rebecca's relationship with Isaac so different from that of Sarah and Abraham? If Sarah was not too reticent to order her husband to banish Ishmael, why is Isaac different in the impact that he has upon his wife? What precise holiness did he have? Rabbi Ezra Bick builds on Rabbi Berlin's writings by suggesting that the answer lies in the Akedah episode. Isaac had been brought as a sacrificial offering atop Mount Moriah. Indeed, the word sacrifice in English is insufficient. The Hebrew word for offering is korban, whose root is karov, closeness. Isaac's life was saved, but an offering he eternally remained. He had, in a certain sense, been more closely united to God than any other individual that had lived thus far. The Talmud takes this notion quite literally and explains that this is the reasoning behind the verse that we come upon soon after, when famine ensues, and unlike Abraham, Isaac is not allowed to travel to Egypt. Genesis 26.2, And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I tell thee of, sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee. Abraham may have been the father of our faith, but he was not a korban, but the offering that was Isaac cannot leave the sacred soil of the Holy Land. This sacred nature of Isaac cuts him off from the world. Rabbi Bick notes that unlike Abraham and Jacob, Isaac engages in very few worldly endeavors, and when he does, as when he digs up Abraham's wells in chapter 26, they are always imitations of his father, never really anything new. Having been atop Mount Moriah, Isaac could not truly descend down to earth. Forced to live in this world, he nevertheless remained bound to heaven. This is the man Rebecca marries. Betwixt the love, there is also a barrier of communication between husband and wife, one which will dominate the future plot. After 20 years of waiting, Rebecca finally becomes pregnant, and her physical troubles therefrom lead her to seek out private prophecy. Genesis 25, 23. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two people shall be separated from thy innards. And the one people shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. The elder shall be subordinate. This is the simple understanding of the Hebrew, Varav Yavod Sa'ir. From this Rebekah understands that her children will not both be part of God's chosen people, and that the younger child will continue Abraham's path. But her reticence before Isaac remains, and this is not shared with her husband even after the children are born. Verse 24, And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came forth ruddy, all over like a hairy mantle, and they called his name Esau. And after that came forth his brother, and his hand had hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. Each name is linked to the moment. Esau, Esav, refers to his hairiness, and Yaakov, Jacob, is rooted in the word heel, Akev. Another physical feature of Esau is also important. He is, we are told, Admoni, which means reddish or ruddy. The boys grow, Esau into a hunter, and Jacob, a man who stayed in the tent. Isaac loves Esau, for we are informed, Sayyid Befiv, his venison, was in his mouth. Perhaps this means that for the spiritual soul that was Isaac, Esau emerges as his constant connection to the physical world. But Rebekah, we are also informed, loves Jacob. The two twins are thus entirely different. But how does this relate to the continuity of the covenant? All, I believe, turns on a small, seemingly strange tale, one which requires our attention because it is actually about something very significant to Judaism. 
food. Esau comes home famished from hunting and discovers his brother stewing a pot of red lentils. Genesis 25, verse 30. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me swallow, I pray thee, some of this red, red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me first thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am going to die. And what profit shall the birthright do to me? Jacob offers to give Esau the lentils in exchange for the cultic ritual preeminence of being firstborn. And Esau agrees. And then, in a rare moment, the Torah offers a comment. Vayivez Esau v'tabachorah. Esau spurned his heritage. The nation that Esau will father will be known as Edom, which, we are informed by this text, is linguistically linked to the word Adom, red, because once when he was hungry, he beseeched his brother for red, red stew. This seems exceedingly odd. The nation derived from Esau was forever known as red because once Esau asked for red stew? Is he not known as Edom, red, because Esau's appearance, as we know, was Admoni? which in Hebrew means reddish or ruddy? Imagine, ladies and gentlemen, learning that Will Chamberlain was known as Wilt the Stilt, not because he was tall, but because once he happened to buy a pair of stilts. It would be bizarre. Yet that is what Scripture seems to apply to Esau here. His nation was called red, not because he was red, but because once he exclaimed, give me some red lentils. The story becomes clear when we appreciate that lentils are red when they are raw. Properly stewed, they take on another color. As the late chef and rabbi Gil Marks writes, the meaning of the tale is that, quote, Esau wanted the stew before it was even fully cooked, which for red lentils is a relatively short time, in as little as 10 minutes once the water is boiling. This corresponds to the tenor of the rest of Esau's demand to literally pour the red stuff down his throat, not even taking time to chew or savor it. And in fact, since red lentils tend to turn pink or golden as they cook, a red hue would seem to indicate an underdone state. Esau. Rabbi Marx further writes, was begging to wolf down an undercooked dish, an act of animalistic gratification far from a spiritual expression, end quote. The redness of the lentils is thus the very symbol of Esau's inability to wait another 10 minutes. He can only live in the now, and that is his state of motivation for selling his birthright. Behold, I am going to die. Why do I need the birthright? For him, the moment is transient. There's a story about Yankees manager Casey Stengel that I read somewhere, which describes Stengel sitting at a bar and ordering a beer and drinking it in one gulp. And a journalist sitting next to him says, Casey, why do you drink your beer like that? And he says, I always drink my beer this way ever since the accident. And the journalist said, Casey, you were in an accident? What happened? And Casey said, someone once knocked over my beer. Esau is a man who sees only transients. Give me the lentils now. The name Red, therefore, implies Esau's inability to look forward to the future, and he is named for it because this flaw invalidates him from the Abrahamic covenant. Such a man cannot connect present to posterity, cannot merge finitude with eternity, cannot serve as a link in what will become the Jewish generations. And indeed, we are further informed that unlike Isaac and Abraham, Esau takes inappropriate wives, and we are therefore told in chapter 26, verse 35, they were a bitterness of spirit unto Isaac and Rebekah. Thus, Esau is clearly the wrong candidate for continuity. Nevertheless, the now blind Isaac asks his elder son to bring him meat from the field, and he will then bestow upon him the blessing of national greatness, apparently at least part of the Abrahamic promise. Rebekah therefore disguises her younger son, places goat here upon his arms, and ensures that the patriarch, while Esau is still in the hunt, blindly bestows the blessings upon Jacob instead. 
Isaac's resplendent spirituality perhaps does explain why Rebecca might have had difficulty discussing her own point of view with him as well as the prophecy she received. But how could he have thought to grant Abraham's covenant upon his unworthy elder son? The answer can perhaps be discerned in the precise wordings of the blessing he bestowed. When Isaac still thought that he was speaking to Esau, though it was Jacob, no reference is made in his words to a spiritual calling. What is spoken of is material wealth and political power. Genesis 27, verse 28. May God give thee of the dew of the heaven and of the fat places of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren. Let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. The blessings are material and political, part of what was bestowed upon Abraham. But here no spiritual component is mentioned, and thus an interpretation of Isaac presents itself. If, as Yogi Berra once said, when you come to a fork in the road, you take it, then that, in a certain sense, is precisely what Isaac intended. He sought to divide the Abrahamic inheritance. Isaac, the heavenly man who had been an offering to heaven, who experienced the physical world primarily through Esau, sought to give material blessing to his older child. To Jacob, who dwelled in the tent, was to be given the spiritual blessing of Abraham, of perpetuating the monotheistic mission. Isaac, the man whose soul as an offering had soared as high as the heavens, whose spirit had slipped the surly bounds of earth and touched the face of God, thought to keep the encounter with the world of the spirit entirely pure, unencumbered by many of the concerns of the real world. And so he decided to split his heritage, to give physical bounty to Esau, to leave spiritual encounter with Jacob. Blessed by God with two children, he intuited that their gifts were entirely different. Why then encumber Jacob the spiritual personality with material matters? Why not with two children give the physical aspects of the blessing to the child less religiously inclined and allow Jacob to focus on the world of faith? This, Arabrilin argues, can be seen from what follows. Esau vows revenge and Jacob prepares to flee. And before he departs, he receives another blessing from his father. And then, when Isaac is utterly aware that it is Jacob he is addressing, the blessing bestowed is different. Genesis 27, verse 28. And may he, meaning God, give thee, meaning Jacob, the blessing of Abraham to thee and thy seed with thee that thou mayest inherit the land of thy sojournings. This was the Abrahamic blessing of the Spirit and the link to the Holy Land. This was the blessing that Isaac had intended for Jacob all along. Isaac's approach, then, may be more understandable. For if the Almighty had given him twins, should he not seek some synchronicity, some way in which they could work together in tandem? But he was mistaken, and rightly understood it is Rebekah who saves the future of Judaism. For as we have discussed, Judaism asks us to unite Adam 1 and Adam 2, to join our physical creative capacities with our faith. Judaism seeks not to shut out the world, but rather to sanctify it. Thus, the many laws of the Torah, laws we will later discover, apply to all aspects of daily life. In Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik's words, quote, The Bible speaks of an existence this worldly centered, when thou buildest a new home, when thou cuttest down thine harvest, when thou comest into thy neighbor's vineyard, yet theo-oriented and unqualifiedly committed to an eternal purpose, end quote. Perhaps Isaac indeed saw a sign in Jacob and Esau's twinship, a heavenly hint, that they should each receive part of the Abrahamic promise. But a nation can be built only if unified in both political and spiritual endeavor. And for this to happen, Jacob must also become someone else. He must become Israel, 
so that the physical and spiritual unite, so that a nation can be formed, not from Isaac's twins, but from Jacob alone. Strikingly, the most fascinating story in the articles about twins in sports did not concern twins at all. It is about the synchronized swimmers named Carolyn Waldo and Michelle Cameron, who competed against the identical Josephson twins in the 1988 Olympics. The journal tells us that, quote, Waldo and Cameron were anything but twins. They have different heights, ages, hair colors, and personalities, and hail from different ends of the country. To compete against the Josephsons, Waldo and Cameron decided to try to be more twin-like. They began warming up at the same pace. When they weren't swimming, they would look at each other and align movements, sometimes with music playing. They played thinking games to see if they could tell which part of the routine the other one was visualizing. Minutes before competing, they synchronized heart rates, end quote. They won the gold in 1988, their coach describing their bond as a wireless connection. And the Wall Street Journal further tells us that though they moved to different parts of the country, strangely, different events throughout their lives seemed somehow linked, occurring at the same time, so that, throughout, as one of them put it, we have been on the same page since we left swimming. The metaphor here, I think, is profound. At Sinai, the Talmudic sages say, Israel stood ki'ish echad belev echad, as one person with one synchronized heart. Jews are not all twins, but we are all connected through rituals and beliefs that metaphysically and mentally link us all over the world so that all of us children of Jacob are bound together wherever we are. And that surely is more extraordinary than a gold medal ever could be. This is Mayor Soloveitchik looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.